Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stone Pages Archeo News Podcast, episode number 260. Again, I must apologize for the long delay in between podcasts. I've been very busy moving back to Denmark as well as getting a new job. And seeing as I don't have a living situation near my job, I'm kind of doing this after office hours when I can. Which is also why the audio quality may swing a little bit as well as how excited I sound. However, you guys probably don't care about that. What you do care about is the news. And the news, as always, are brought to you from various sources on the web by our wonderful team over at the Stone Pages website. And I think you should go check it out at news.stonepages.com. There you will find the sources for all of the stories we covered today, as well as any stories that we may have missed. Also, if you have any comments or corrections, you can always contact me at philip at stonepages.com. That is P-H-I-L-I-P at stonepages.com. Or you can follow the link in the RSS feed or the uh, iTunes feed as well. Now without further ado, let's see what we have for you guys today. We start with a Neolithic tomb in Orkney being closed due to safety fears. And then we have some amazing rock art uh, studied and then reburied in Scotland. We have a slightly funny story about burnt cheese casting light on a 3,000 year old family drama. Then we go to the Alps where we figure out what Uzi may have sounded like. And then finally in the same vein we find the world's oldest snowshoe on an Italian glacier. After that, we will look at the Neanderthals, who are believed to have more cognitive abilities than the first thought. Then we have some dyed material from Peru predating that in Egypt. Following that, we have the indigenous Australian stories recording a sea level rise some 7,000 years ago. Then from Plymouth, we have ancient artifacts found on a building site and also pressed flowers among Bronze Age finds. Then we go to some sadder news where we find out that archaeological evidence are at major risk, especially in British wetlands. Aboriginal astronomy providing clues to ancient life, and teeth revealing that Britons were highly mobile some 4,000 years ago. Then we look to China, where we find out that people are actually buried in cannabis shrouds. Then we row, row, row our boat across the South Pacific Islands and figure out how humans spread throughout the Oceanias. Then we have some pottery for all of the shirt nerds, with a well-preserved pot found at the Gwinnett Quarry Dig. Then we brew some ale with the Stone Age people who may have been the first to ever brew ale. Then we get down to the nitty gritty problem, namely pollution, but from before the Bronze Age. So not our fault actually, or at least not directly. And last but certainly not least, we have a new story on the paleo diet, namely that it was full of veggies. And now for our first story, we have one of Orkney's most popular ancient landmarks being closed due to concerns of public safety. The closure of one of the biggest and most impressive of Orkney's Neolithic chambered canes was announced by Mays Howe of Historic Environment Scotland, or the HES, and it was closed down in September. Now, the site attracts around 25,000 visitors annually, and the temporary closure was ordered due to concerns of uh, dangerous accessing the site, which is mainly due to the fact that visitors had to use his car park and had to cross one of Orkney mainland's busiest roads. Now, the HES was monitoring safety issues relating to the vehicle movements around the 5,000-year-old tomb, and they were able to conclude that there was a significant risk to the staff as well as the visitors that cannot be overcome as of yet now. From the 26th of December, the site was closed, with the staff at the site being redeployed to other roles. Mace Howe has announced that the site will not be reopened until the issues have been addressed. 
The acting chief executive and director of conservation at the AGS, Dr. David Mitchell, said that this is not a decision we take lightly, but our primary focus must be the safety of our staff and visitor. The AGS board recently considered a development proposal which looked at the site's infrastructure. They wished to discuss the project further with Orkney Island Council. This was a catalyst for us to reassess the risks associated with the site, and in consequence, we have decided to effect a temporary site closure until the identified risk can be mitigated to a satisfactory level. He also added that, in the long term, we are absolutely committed to finding a long-term solution for this site and working with our partners to conserve and share the wonderful heritage assets in Orkney. And now for our next story, we have an amazing rock art panel being studied and then reburied in Scotland, ensuring that future archaeologists will have work at some point in time. The rock art in question is a prehistoric stone panel said to be the most important in Europe, as it contains the best examples of Neolithic or Bronze Age cup and ring markings in Europe. The stone was excavated more than 50 years ago in Clydebank, which lies in West Dunbartonshire, Scotland, and dates back to around 3000 BCE. Currently, the stone is located next to a housing estate. The excavation of the stone lasted about three weeks and allowed the archaeologists to use 3D imaging technology to make a detailed digital record of the site. Dr. Kenny Brophy from Glasgow University is actually leading that dig next to Kushno Farm and said that this is the biggest and I would argue one of the most important Neolithic art panels in Europe. The cup and ring marks are extensive but the site just happens to be in the middle of an urban housing scheme in Clydebank. It was last fully open to the elements and the public up until 1965. Sadly, as it was neglected, it has also been damaged through vandalism and people just traipsing all over it. A trial excavation last year indicated that modern graffiti is probably extensive over the stone surface. Now, this project was done between the University of Glasgow Archaeology Department and the Factum Foundation for Digital Technology and Conservation, and they aim to produce a life-size copy of the 8-meter by 13-meter stone using the recorded digital data and historical sources, including the graffiti as well, as the prehistoric uh, surface. Now, the uh, rock art panel has been reburied to protect the national treasure, Brophy stating, perhaps in the future, this site could be turned into a major tourist attraction in Scotland with a visitor center, who knows? And as much as many of you may be asking as to why we do this, um, rebearing very important artifacts. It is, like Brophy says, for the idea of conservation, but it is also done in the U.S. with Native American skeletons as well as in Israel with skeletons that are found there um, due to the laws requiring them to be immediately buried after excavation. And for our next story, I will admit I chose this mainly due to the headline, Burt Cheese Cast Light on 3,000-Year-Old Family Drama. While you could be forgiven to think that this would be taking place in Italy and we would have another Romeo and Juliet on our hands, it is in fact from Denmark. So I will apologize if my accent sounds weird as I tried to pronounce the Danish names in Danish, which might affect my English a little bit. But without further ado, here we go. During an excavation in Sigeborg, which lies in central Jutland of Denmark, uh, the Museum of Sigeborg curator Kai Rasmussen says that they found a clay pot, which was once in a pit, and quite unusually, it was in near-mint condition, and this itself is an exciting find. 
Once the pot was cleaned, it was discovered that there was a layer of burnt material on the inside of the vessel. Now, normally, if you find pots that have charred material on the inside, it's usually from corn or seeds. However, in this case, as Rasmussen states, there was a very white and yellow crust which hadn't been seen before. He also adds, we then sent samples to the Danish National Museum to see if we could get a closer look. At the National Museum of Denmark, the chemist and senior consultant, Mads Christensen, who conducted the analysis, says that we took a microscopic sample of the remains and studied them using mass spectrometry. After we had consulted the literature in this field, we cautiously came to the suggestion that it was bovine fat. Based on these results, Rasmussen stated that it could be part of a failed cheese making. This is based on uh, the process of making cheese, where Rasmussen states that the fat could be part of the last traces of curds used during the original production of traditional hard cheese. The whey is boiled down, and it contains a lot of sugars, which in this way can be preserved and stored for the winter. It is the same method used to make brown Norwegian whey cheese, where you boil down the whey, and what's left is a caramel-like mass that is turned into the brown cheese that we know today from the supermarket chiller cabinet. He also adds that I cannot help but wonder if someone had a guilty conscience. It's a well and truly burned and must have smelled terrible. You can almost imagine how quickly he must have acted to get rid of the pot. And now for an old podcast favorite that's not Stonehenge, it's in fact Utsi, the Iceman. And recent research has shown what he might actually have sounded like. Now, while we know what Utsi was wearing uh, around 5,000 years ago, we know roughly the tattoos we had, as well as some of the diseases that he might have had, as we have previously covered, uh, scientists have actually recreated what they believe to be a very good approximation of his voice. The lead researcher of the project, Roland Fuestos, said, We can't say we have reconstructed Utzi's original voice because we missed some crucial information from the mummy. But with two measurements, the length of both the vocal tract and the vocal cords, we have been able to recreate a fairly reliable approximation of the mummy's voice. Now, Utzi was found by German hikers in 1991, and he was frozen and mummified in the Utzel Alps in southern Tyrol. And it is also Europe's oldest known natural mummy, which provides uh, researchers with an unprecedented glimpse into what life was like around 3300 BCE, which is during the Copper Age. Now, we know that Utzi was murdered, we uh, think he most likely died from an arrow wound to his shoulder, and he was dressed in various uh, adornments of sheep, goat, and cow skins, and seems to have carried a deerskin quiver and a bearskin cap. He also has 61 tattoos, which have also been studied in detail, and by reconstructing his voice, researchers hope to gain even more insight into what humans may have sounded like during that time. Francesco Avanzini, one of the researchers of the project, said that, of course, we don't know what language he spoke 5,000 years ago, but we should be able to recreate the timbre of his vowel sounds, and I hope even recreate simulation of consonants. Now, Utsi's vowel sounds were actually recreated, and they used a CT scan to recreate them instead of an MRI scan, because it was believed that MRI scans could damage the mummy. There were also other difficulties in that uh, Utsi's arm is actually covering his throat, and the hyoid, or tongue bone, which is partly absorbed and dislocated. The tension and the density of the vocal cords and the thickness and composition of the throat tissue were also simulated using mathematical models. The team predicts that uh, Utsi's voice had a frequency between 100 and 150 hertz, 
which is actually quite similar to what males have today. And from our last story on Utsi, we continue to another story in the same area where it is believed that the world's oldest snowshoe has been found on an Italian glacier. The research was done by scientists in Italy's Dolomite Mountains, and they have unveiled what they believe to be the world's oldest snowshoe. The carbon dating has shown that the snowshoe, which was made out of birch wood and twine, was made in the late Neolithic age between 3800 and 3700 BCE. The snowshoe was discovered by Simone Bartolini on the Gurgler Ishok Glacier, sorry for mispronounced that, at an altitude of 3,134 meters or 10,280 feet. The ice and the freezing temperatures of the glacier provided the ideal conditions for the preservation of the organic material. The man who found the snowshoe, Dr. Bartolini, is a cartographer from Italy's Military Geographical Institute, and he was mapping the border with Austria when he came across the snowshoe in 2003. However, he kept it for 12 years in his office in Florence as a curiosity. Dr. Bartolini says that at first I thought it was maybe 100 years old and was a snowshoe that belonged to a farmer who lost it while driving cattle. I kept it in my office as a keepsake. However, last year it dawned on him that it could actually be much older and much more significant as a result of that. Therefore, he gave it to archaeologists to study. It is worth noting that the discovery of the snowshoe is actually close to where the mummified remains of the Neolithic hunter, who was nicknamed Ertzi, as we all know, was found by two German hikers 25 years ago. Dr. Katrin Masoli, who is the director of the province's cultural heritage department, says that the shoe is evidence that people in the Neolithic period were living in the Alps area and had equipped themselves accordingly. However, it is unclear why people were traveling through such an inhospitable region. It is possible that they may have been hunting animals or fleeing enemies uh, from a rival tribe or visiting sites of worship. The shoe will be put on display at the South Tyrol Museum of Archaeology in Bolzano, and the global warming and the gradual retreat of glaciers has helped unearth new finds, said Valentino Pagani, who is the director of the Museum of Archaeology. And from the Swiss Alps, we go to French caves, where it is believed that there is evidence of Neanderthals having more cognitive abilities than previously thought. Now, in the central region of France, at Assis-sur-Coe, lies a cave which has been at the center of controversy for some time since its excavation in the period between 1949 to 1963. Specifically, the uh, controversy lies in Neanderthal intelligence. The cave is known as Côté du René and was uncovered in the aforementioned period and contained Neanderthal bone fragments as well as a selection of small ornaments made from animal teeth, shells, and ivory which had been fashioned with holes and grooves and would probably have been part of a primitive necklace. Now the argument is that since the bones were found in the same layer as the Neanderthal fossils, then they must have been fashioned by said Neanderthals, though others claim that Neanderthals did not have the cognitive ability to make such symbolic artifacts, and therefore it must have been made by modern humans and mixed up during the excavations. Now, due to an improvement in analytical sciences, them being far more advanced now than they were 60 years ago, the University of York has been developing studies uh, in the field of ancient proteins. Now, the study of the ancient proteins allowed the scientists to study these bone fragments, specifically taking samples from the collagen, and this was due to the fact that there was insufficient traces of DNA that could be extracted from the bone fragments to be studied. 
Now, what they found was that there is a difference in the amino acids of the bone fragments from France and in modern man. In modern man, the main amino acid is aspartic acid, while the archaic man's primary amino acid is something called asparagine. The results of this test confirmed then that the bone fragments actually belong to Neanderthals and not modern man. And the paleoanthropologist Jean-Jacques Hublin from the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, is quoted saying, You can invent all sorts of stories, but the simplest explanation is that this assemblage was made at least in part by Neanderthals. And, seeing as we have been very European-focused so far this episode, as well as last episode, I feel we need to go somewhere else. So, let's go to Peru, where the oldest dyed material has been found, and it is believed that it predates Egypt. Now, indigo is a blue pigment that comes from a plant with the Latin name Indigofera tinctoria, and it's distinctive enough to be one of the seven named colors of the rainbow. Up until now, the oldest archaeologically proven piece of dyed fabric exists in Egypt and is dated to around 2400 BCE and is dyed indigo. This is despite the fact that there is actually written evidence of the indigo being used as a dye in the Middle East nearly 500 years earlier. However, a team of archaeologists from the George Washington University in the U.S. have found fragments of a piece of dyed cloth or at least dyed material while they were excavating the floor in the Huaca Prieta Temple, which is part of a prehistoric settlement near the Pacific Ocean in the Chicama Valley in Peru. Now, for those of you unaware of how finds look when they come out of the ground, they tend to be mostly a very brown color, oddly enough, seeing as they've been in the dirt, but it was most likely due to this reason that the fragment the material was embedded in wasn't really noticed until it was sent to the UCL, or the University College of London. At the University College London, scientists were able to use high-performance liquid chromatography to study the material and actually discovered the indigo dye. The sample was also dated uh, to be from around 4200 BCE, which predates the Egyptian fragment by 1800 years. Jeffrey Splitoser from the George Washington University is quoted saying, The people of the Americas were making scientific and technological contributions as early as, and in this case even earlier, than people were in other parts of the world. We always leave them out. I think this finding just shows that that's a mistake. And from Peru, we take a trip to Australia, where it seems that storytelling actually has recorded how the sea levels rose around Australia some 7,000 years ago. Patrick Nunn, a marine geographer from Sunshine Coast University, and Nicholas Reed, a linguist from the University of New England, believe that 21 indigenous stories from across the Australian continent faithfully record events between 18,000 to 7,000 years ago, when the water levels around Australia rose 120 meters. This is sadly not a continuation of the story we had last podcast about the sea levels rising around one of the aboriginal caves, but it could possibly be interpreted as a uh, kind of recording of that story specifically. Reed says that a key feature of this indigenous storytelling culture is that there is a distinctive cross-generational cross-checking process, which might explain why the indigenous people of Australia have maintained such a remarkable consistency in the accounts passed down by the pre-literate people, even though researchers previously believed that this could not persist for more than 800 years. While scholars have previously been very skeptical of how accurately oral traditions they reflect the real events of the world, Nunn and Reed believe and argue in their paper that these stories provide an empirical corroboration of post-glacial sea level rise, 
which is documented by marine geographers. It should be noted that some of these stories are factual accounts, such as those that tell of the loss of kangaroo hunting grounds, while others, especially the older stories, are allegorical. Uh, for example, an ancestral being angered by the misbehavior of a clan punishes them by taking their country, gouging a groove with a magical kangaroo bone for the sea to swallow up the land. Reed explains that our sense originally is that the sea level must have been creeping up very slowly and not been noticeable in an individual's lifetime. There must have been constant inland movement reestablishing relationships with the country, negotiating with inland neighbors about encroaching onto their territory, there would have been massive ramifications of this. Now, as with anything, the fortunes of this movement was mixed. People on Rotnest and Kangaroo Islands departed as much as 7,000 years ago, while others, such as those at Flinders Island in Bass Strait, stayed on and died out due to the fact that the land grew arid and fresh water became very scarce. Reed also says that while it was impossible to prove that indigenous oral traditions continued unbroken over time, its contemporary features provide clues. Say I'm a man from Central Australia. My father teaches me stories about my country, says Reed. My sister's children, my nephews and nieces, are explicitly tasked with the kin-based responsibility for ensuring I know those stories properly. They take those responsibilities seriously. At any given point in time, my father is telling the stories to me and his grandkids are checking. Three generations are hearing the story at once. That's a kind of scaffolding that can keep stories true. When you have three generations constantly in the know and tasked with checking as a cultural responsibility, that creates the kind of mechanism that could explain why indigenous Australians seem to have done something that hasn't been achieved elsewhere in the world, telling stories for 10,000 years. And from the Southern Hemisphere, let's once again return to the Northern Hemisphere, where ancient artifacts have been found on Plymouth Building Site. Here, archaeological investigations that have been taking place in the town since last year across Sherford, which is a new town on the eastern edge of Plymouth, which in turn lies 300 kilometers southwest of London on the south coast of England. Archaeologists from Wessex Archaeology have discovered features such as roundhouses, which are distinct homes believed to have been used for family groups in prehistoric farmer communities. Some of the artifacts found also include a rare decorated bone weaving comb, as well as two Bronze Age burial mounds, which date to between 2400 and 1600 BCE. One of these burial mounds actually contained the cremated remains of an individual, most likely of high importance, in a decorated pottery vessel. More notable recent finds also include uh, flintwork, which dates from 8500 to 4000 BCE, indicating that Neolithic hunters and gatherers thrived in the area before the first communities actually arrived. Andy Mays, who is an archaeologist with Wessex Archaeology, calls the site one of the most fascinating large-scale archaeological projects we have worked on to date, also adding that the prehistoric landscape of Devon is poorly understood and our findings at Sherford have national significance, expanding our historic understanding of the local area. Bill Horner, a Devon County archaeologist, says that the developments of this size are very rare in Devon, and it gives us a unique opportunity to look at archaeology on a landscape scale. And for our next story, we look at something that is the cornerstone of prehistoric archaeology, namely ritual offerings. However, the one included in this story is slightly different than the norm, including a pressed flower. The flower was found during an excavation of a ritual offering, which was unearthed at a site in northwest England, which included weapons, jewelry, and ornaments, along with a 3,000-year-old pressed flower. 
The flower is specifically a thistle, which is a plant that has become a very、uh, big emblem of Scotland. It appears that the flower itself was actually placed inside the hollow end of an axe, and then it was buried with the other items.、Uh, other axe handles in the assemblage have also been filled with hazelnuts. All of the items that were found as part of this excavation were all submerged in the wetlands, and is believed to have been done so by the local farming community. And the items that were submerged included spearheads, axes, bracelets, arm rings, a chisel, and a pair of ornaments, which were thought to be part of a horse harness. While this discovery, in and of itself, is actually quite unique, it is comparable to discoveries that have been made throughout Ireland and Scotland. Horns from these areas generally contain one or two different types of objects, but this one has several. Dr. Ben Roberts, who is a lecturer at Durham University and also the former curator of European Bronze Age collections at the British Museum, says that we always think that votive offerings are all about metal. What this highlights is that there would have been other things placed with the metal. It could have been food, clothing, all sorts of things made of wood that couldn't have survived. So what we're talking about is certainly a horror that reflects the interconnections both across the Irish Sea and well into Scotland. Brendan Wilkist, who is an archaeologist and project director, said that he heard of this discovery while he himself was excavating a Bronze Age burial site that had been discovered in Morecambe Bay, 400 kilometers northwest of London, and it was found within 11 kilometers of his excavation. The、uh, Morecambe Bay excavation was partly financed through Dick Ventures, which is a crowdfunding enterprise founded by Wilkins and two other archaeologists. And this is to address the severe cuts that have been to research funding from an archaeological perspective. A team of archaeologists from Dick Ventures, as well as Durham University and the Portable Antiquities Scheme, have described the votive hoard as a spectacular and significant find. Now, for our next story, we will actually be covering a subject that is very near and dear to most archaeologists, namely the preservation of finds. Now, when we get really, really excellent finds from the field, it's usually organic in nature because the organic stuff rarely ever survives, and it needs a very ideal and very specific kind of environment for it to survive, such as bog bodies, for example. However, other archaeological evidence can also be at risk, but it's the organic ones that are usually the main culprits for falling apart and need the best preservation. Though in some cases, like we talked about today, stones can be reburied to make sure that they just stay safe in the area that they are. Now, there is actually new evidence for archaeological evidence being at risk in the British wetlands, and not just a small risk. We're talking major risk, and this is based on、um, a new study done by the University of York, who analyzed bone and wood artifacts collected from the Mesolithic site at Stagcar in North Yorkshire. And actually found that there was an unexpectedly high rabbit levels of organic decay, and this is actually one of the first studies that shows and assesses how changing conditions actually affect the preservation of the organic remains at wetland sites. Now, Star Car is well known for turning up amazing finds, including、um, a Mesolithic engraved pendant,、uh, rare headdresses made out of red deer skulls, and other items as, as such. And Star Car, while having been excavated since the 1940s, had usually very, very good preservation of materials.、Um, but the excavations from 2006 and 7 showed that the、uh, levels of bone and wood decay was really, really high to an alarming level. 
Now, this rapid level of decay can actually be attributed to the result of acidic conditions, which are caused by fluctuations of water as a result of um, changing climate and human activities such as land drainage. However, the big problem that we're facing is that there's a lack of knowledge about the timescale of deterioration or if the uh, rapidity has limited the amount of strategies we can use to protect the archaeology. So now researchers are urging the archaeological community to prioritize excavations and retrieve all these valuable organic remains. One of the senior lecturers in York's Department of Chemistry, Dr. Kirsty Pinkman, who's also a co-author of the study, says that as potential threats to wetlands such as pollution and changes in land use continue to occur on an unprecedented scale, it is increasingly likely that other waterlogged archaeological sites are at risk from similar processes to those seen at Stark Carr. Now, Dr. Kirsty High, who's a research fellow in York's Department of Chemistry and lead author of the study, is set to continue the research into the preservation of waterlogged archaeological materials. Uh, and her plan is to advise and transfer this knowledge at other wetland sites across the UK and Europe. And jumping off of the story we had last podcast about the uh, summer and the winter solstice being very big factors in determining the placement of certain Scottish megaliths, we have some Aboriginal astronomy providing clues to the ancient life of Australia. Now, this new site is actually uh, based in astronomy as well, though it has more to say about the general life around Australia than uh, the Scottish megaliths did. It is believed that these stones at uh, Wodi Yuang, which is the name of the stone arrangement, could date back to more than 11,000 years and provide clues into the origins of agriculture. And if the site is just more than 7,000 years old, it could rewrite history and then also disprove the notion that the first Australians were uniformly nomadic hunter-gatherers. Now, scientists believe that the Aborigines arranged the stones in such a way that they were able to map out the movements of the sun throughout the year. Dr. Dwayne Hamaker, who is a leader in the study of indigenous astronomy, has been working with Aboriginal elders at the site to reconstruct the knowledge of the stars and planets, and he believes that the first Australians had a complex knowledge system. He says that they understand very well the notions he says they understand very well the motions of the sun, the moon, the planets, and the stars throughout the year and over long periods of time. He also adds that white Australians don't generally recognize that the history of colonialism has erased that, so what we're doing is helping the communities piece that information back together by working with the communities. Now, the idea that there was something going on around the stone setting is based on the fact that there seems to have been a semi-permanent village with evidence of early fishing and farming practices. There are areas where eel traps would have been set up, and there are signs of gilgies, which are terraces used in farming. The custodian of the area, Reg Abraham, says that you see a lot of agricultural and aquacultural practices, so evidence of this agriculture may go back tens of thousands of years, predating what anthropologists commonly think of as the dawn of agriculture, which is about 11,000 years ago in Mesopotamia. Now, traditional owners, such as Judy Dalton Walsh, says that the research into the site and the Aboriginal astronomy means that the knowledge of this area can continue to be passed on. We learned at school the European names for the stars and the Milky Way, and it's also good to know that we traditionally had a name for them as well. Our gods were up there in the stars. And now our next story is actually a Stonehenge story, though somewhat indirectly. This is due to the fact that teeth reveal that Britons were highly mobile some 4,000 years ago. 
So before we had the roaming Romans, we had the bumming Britons, and I do mean bumming as in terms of traveling. I have looked up the synonym. Trust me. This news story comes as the result of archaeologists having created a new database from teeth of prehistoric humans found at ancient burial sites in Britain and Ireland. Now these teeth tell us a lot about the climate, the diet, and even how far these ancient people may have traveled. Dr. Mara Pellegrini from the University of Oxford led a paper, and、uh, also other researchers have said that individuals in prehistoric Britain were highly mobile. Now this study is part of another. Larger project led by our good old friend Professor Mike Parker Pearson of the University College London, who we always hear about when we have something to do with Stonehenge, and the project specifically is the International Beaker People Project. The idea is that scientists are involved from many academic institutions and has helped collect all of these teeth. The paper states that most of the teeth in the collection dates the Copper and the Early Bronze Age periods, which is 2500 BCE to 1500 BCE. And suggest that not only were people moving around their own country, but may also have been traveling to and from continental Europe. Now, the tests were done on the tooth enamel, which provide evidence of where individuals spent their childhood. And the analysis of 261 teeth of those buried in the Stonehenge region, the Peak Districts, and the hills of Yorkshire Wolds show that there are not a lot of local people, and at least not as far as their final resting place goes. The people were instead drawn from far and wide. And、uh, even sometimes to focal points containing sacred monuments. The variability in the isotope values was found to be very high in the areas near Woodhenge, which is like Stonehenge, just made out of wood, but slightly close to Stonehenge. Below, which is a Bronze Age round cairn in the Peak District, and Garton Slack in Yorkshire, where there is actually a very complex range of burial types and burial practices. Now for our next story, moving on from Stonehenge, let's go to the far east where ancient cannabis burial shrouds have been found in a Chinese oasis. The discovery of cannabis in ancient burials in northwestern China adds considerably to our understanding of how ancient Eurasian cultures used the plant, according to archaeologists. The burials contain 13 female cannabis plants that are almost three feet long and were placed diagonally across the chest of approximately. 35-year-old adult man with Caucasian features who was laid out on a wooden bed with a reed pillow beneath his head. Now, nearly all of the flowering heads had been cut off, and the few that remained were nearly ripe and covered with tiny plant hair in quotation marks that consisted of the highest concentration of the psychoactive compounds. This actually suggests the plant was grown and harvested for the resin and not for the other effects that it does give. And that the burial occurred in the late summer. Now, this is the first time that archaeologists have actually recovered complete cannabis plants, as well as、uh, showed how it was used as a shroud and quotation marks in human burial. Now, the burial is very special, and is one out of 240 graves excavated in the Ji Cemetery in Tuapan, and is part of what is known as the Gushi Kingdom or Subexi culture. And this. Culture occupied the area specifically between roughly 3,000 and 2,000 years ago. At the time, the desert oasis of Tuapan was important,、uh, as it was a stop on the Silk Road, and the radiocarbon dating of the tomb's contents indicate that the burial occurred approximately 2,400 to 2,800 years ago. So, very close dating, actually, as far as radiocarbon goes. Now, what a growing collection of archaeological evidence shows is that cannabis consumption. It was very popular, much as it is today, though for completely different reasons, most likely across the Eurasian steppes thousands of years ago. This is based on the discovery of cannabis plant parts 
in other turbaned burials, most notably near the contemporary uh, burial in the Yanghai Cemetery, which contained close to one kilo of cannabis seeds and powdered leaves. Cannabis seeds have also been found, uh, dating back to the first millennium BCE in Scythian burials in southern Siberia, one of which was a woman who possibly died of breast cancer. Now, archaeologists suspect that this might actually have had a medicinal effect and was used to ease her symptoms. So far, no hemp textiles have been found in the turban burials, and the seeds of the plants in the GI burials are too small to serve as a practical food source. And now for a story that continues in much the same way as we had one of our earlier stories about the movement in Britain. Though this one is slightly more dramatic and actually takes a quite long pause. Now to start with some background info. Some 3400 years ago, the people on the Solomon Islands left their shores for greener pastures, or greener islands as it may be, in the seas of the South Pacific. Now as a result of this, humans were able to go to the most remote reaches of the Oceania like the tropical islands of Hawaii, Tonga, and Fiji. Dr. Alvaro Montenegro, who's a geographer and climatologist from Ohio State University, said that the first ones were traveling to the unknown. Now, after traveling more than 2,000 miles and after some 300 years of island hopping from the Solomon Islands, the archaeological evidence suggests that uh, these people actually halted for 2,000 years before continuing on to the other islands. This period is known as the Long Pause, and it represents a very intriguing question for researchers who study these cultures. A small footnote here, the long pause is also probably the name of the time between a podcast episode coming out now at this point. Now, Dr. Montenegro has some questions about this. Specifically, why is it that the people stopped for 2,000 years? Clearly, they were interested and capable. Why did they stop after having great success for a great time? Now, to answer these questions, Dr. Montenegro and his colleagues ran a lot of voyage simulations and concluded that the long pause that delayed the humans from reaching Hawaii, Tahiti, and New Zealand occurred because the explorers were unable to sail through the strong winds that surround Tonga and Samoa. Dr. Montenegro is quoted saying, Our paper supports the idea that what people needed was boating technology or navigation technology that would allow them to move efficiently against the wind. The computer simulations showed that the wind was an essential part of the early expansion to these islands. Now, when they were leaving the Solomon Islands to Tonga, Samoa, they had the winds at their backs, meaning that they could sail very smoothly and populate islands kind of like Fiji and Vanuatu. However, after reaching this part of the Pacific, the environment uh, changed and they had a very great headwind, meaning that they were unable to travel as smoothly as before and thereby they needed sails. Now, once the people found a new way to conquer the wind, the ancient people ended this 2,000-year-old hiatus and over a period of a few hundred years colonized the rest of Oceania, such as the islands of Hawaii, Tahiti, and New Zealand. Now, from an archaeological standpoint, this is kind of very similar to what we see in northern Europe, with the sail on the Viking boats being the main factor for the early Viking raids and allowing the Vikings to travel as far as they did to the outermost regions of northern America. And now for a story for all of the shirt nerds of the Stone Pages Archaeo News podcast, specifically about well-preserved pottery found inside the Gwynedd Quarry dig. And before we get any further, I would like to point out that this is a story from Wales, so if I mispronounce any of the names, feel free to correct me. You can always send an email to me at philip at stonepages.com. Now, archaeologists working in a Gwynedd Quarry in Wales discovered an ancient cemetery which had some of the best-preserved Bronze Age pottery ever found in the area. 
Now, the team from Berlin Archaeology were working in the Kenf Gainok Quarry at Lanlefin, uh, which lies near Kanafon, on behalf of the site operators. Now, while the quarry diggers were working, they came across a Bronze Age cemetery, but they were even more shocked to find that there was actually two graves lying inside. Ivan Perry, who works for Berlin Archaeology, said that the quarry has been operating since the 1970s, and we know the area has been occupied since the Bronze Age, thanks to our previous discoveries. So we know that there is a lot of archaeology in the area, but to discover a cemetery was totally unexpected, and the artifacts inside the graves were an even bigger surprise. Now, the two graves that were discovered were created from pits lined with stone slabs, one smaller and the other one slightly larger, but both adult-sized graves which contain the two pots known as beakers. Ivan is quoted saying they are a specific kind of pot dating from the end of the Neolithic Age and the start of the Bronze Age, making them about 4,000 years old. The smaller pot was damaged and has been painstakingly reconstructed by conservation staff at Cardiff University, but the larger pot was completely intact. It was so well preserved that it could easily have been a reproduction made a few days ago rather than something that's been in the ground for 4,000 years and the beakers are some of the earliest examples ever found in this part of North Wales. Now, the uh, pots were not the only discovery. The team also discovered pits containing charcoal and pottery, which are believed to date back to the Bronze Age. And the treasure uncovered will be passed on to Storiel, which is the Gwynedd Museum and Art Gallery in Bangor. And for our next story, we will be focusing on something that every single archaeologist enjoys, namely ale, or beer for that matter. And it turns out that the Brits may have been the first to brew ale all the way back to the Stone Age. Now, this is based on an excavation done in the 1980s at Kinloch, which lies on Scotland's Outer Hebrides on the Isle of Rum, funny enough, uh, where they found uh, residue from long evaporated beverages in pottery dating back about 4,000 years. Now, the microscopic analysis has detected pollen grains, which suggest a high level of heather with some meadowsweet and royal fern. Caroline Wickham-Jones, who was part of the excavation back in the 1980s, said, If you regarded them as a recipe, then you can ask, what would they make? And one of the things was heather ale as a fermented drink. But it might easily have been a mouthwash or something. Now in archaeology, one of the most important things to do is experimental archaeology. It can give us a lot of evidence and uh, give us a general idea of how the artifacts may have been used. So... Not to veer from the path, Wickham Jones and her team enlisted the help of the Glenfiddich Distillery, and they brewed an ale based on this recipe. And uh, she says that it was fabulous. Now, apart from this recipe, there have also been found large pots and evidence of heat-cracked stones at Scarbray, which is a 5,000-year-old settlement in Orkney, which is just northeast of Scotland. Now, the local archaeologist there, Marin Denley, believes that some of these pots were used for roasting malt, which is the germinated and heated cereal grains that ferment to alcohol. However, proving the early existence of beer or other alcohols is not very easy, as noted by Jessica Smith, who is an archaeologist and chemist at University College Dublin. She says that proving conclusively that specific alcoholic beverages were drunk as far back as the Neolithic is extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible. Microscopic analysis of residues can never provide complete proof that an alcoholic beverage was one held in a vessel. Despite the difficulty of residue analysis, Oliver Craig, who is an expert in biomolecular archaeology at the University of York, says that if you've got sprouted barley, that's good evidence for beer production, though it is difficult to find such at pre-Roman sites in Britain. 
This could be explained due to the fact that sometime between 5300 and 4400 years ago, which is during the Neolithic period, Britons had a shortage of cereal grains for several hundred years due to climatic changes, at least according to the archaeologist Chris Stevens of University College London. Now, apart from ales brewed with fermented grain, it is possible that some of the early Britons they drank fermented honey. Wickham Jones says that the heather ale, in quotation marks, that may have been drunk at Kinloch would more likely have been of this type. I think I now have to make a pilgrimage to the uh, Glenfiddich Brewery. That sounds like a very tasty beer, actually. If somebody from Glenfiddich is listening to this, feel free to send us a bottle or two. And now for this story, we have an um, archaeological discovery that focuses a lot on what we actually cover in our everyday life, namely uh, pollution by humans. And it is believed that the first polluted river from before the Bronze Age has been found. The discovery was made by an international team of researchers who may have discovered what could be the world's first polluted river, probably contaminated some 7,000 years ago. The uh, riverbed is now dry and it lies in the Wadi Fayan region of southern Jordan. And Professor Russell Adams, who uh, studies at the Department of Anthropology at the University of Waterloo, as well as his colleagues, found evidence of early pollution caused by combustion of copper. It is believed that the Neolithic humans from this region may have been in the early stages of developing mortality by learning how to smelt. This period is known as the Copper Age and is a transitional period which lies between the Late Neolithic or the Stone Age and the beginning of the Bronze Age. Adam said that these populations were experimenting with fire, experimenting with pottery, and experimenting with copper ores, and all three of these components are part of the early production of copper metals from ores. Now, the copper of the time was made by combining charcoal and blue-green copper ore, which is found in abundance in the area, and then these were combined in the pottery crucibles or the vessels and then heated uh, over a fire. The process was time-consuming and labor-intensive, and for this reason, it took thousands of years before copper became a central part of human societies. However, as time passed, communities in the region grew larger and the copper production began to expand. People therefore built mines, started building larger furnaces to smelt the copper, and uh, all of this happened around 2600 BCE. However, there was a heavy price for this increased production. The slag, or the waste product of the smelting, remained. And the slag contained metals such as copper, lead, zinc, and cadmium, and even arsenic, mercury, and thallium. The big problem is the plants absorbed these metals, and then the people and animals such as goats and sheep ate them. Thereby, the contaminants were actually bioaccumulated in the environment. Adam believes that the pollution from thousands of years of copper mining and production must have led to widespread health problems in an ancient population. The health problems in question would be infertility, malformations, and premature death, and therefore Adams and his international team of researchers are trying to expand the analysis of the effects of this pollution to the Bronze Age, which began around 3200 BCE. The Fennan region has a long history of human occupation, and the team is examining the extent and the spread of this pollution at the time when metals, as well as their industrial scale of production, became central to human societies. And now for our last story of the day, we have a, a slightly controversial topic, namely the paleo diet and the fact that it was more of a veggie feast than anything else. Now, as a whole, archaeologists, they do tend to emphasize the role of meat in ancient human diets, and this is probably mostly a uh, excavation bias due to the fact that butchered bones of wild animals are more likely to be preserved than their organic counterparts. 
However, excavations at the Stone Age site in Israel revealed that roasted acorns and sedges were both on the menu. The site in question is the Gesher Benodiakov site in northern Israel, which was occupied 780,000 years ago, most likely by Homo erectus or a very closely related species. The study was led by Yoel Melamed and Nama Cohen in Ba, both from the Ba Ilan University in Ramat Gan, Israel, and their colleagues have compiled data on the diversity and the abundance of plant remains. And this was done both during periods where there is evidence of human activity as well as when there is no evidence of human activity. By comparing the two periods, they revealed that ancient humans collected no fewer than 55 different plants. Goyen Ba is quoted saying, It gives one a substantial element of security when particular sources become rare or absent. The modern human diet is clearly restricted when compared to the hominin diet or even the early farmer's diet. Unga explains there probably was no single balance between meat and plant. Human evolution is a work in progress, and diets likely varied along a continuum in both time and space. Amanda Henry from the Max Planck Institute of Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany, believes that the early human diets may have tipped towards being plant-rich. She says, we need plant-derived nutrients to survive, vitamin C and fiber, for example. Hominins were probably predominantly vegetarians. Also adding that only a very little amount of animal protein and fat is needed to supplement a predominantly plant-based diet. To this end, some plants seem to have been very popular with our Stone Age forebearers, namely water lilies, bulrushes, thistles, acorns, and water chestnuts. Based on this data, Gorin and Ba reminds us that many species that most of us no longer recognize as food sources were recorded as food sources during the last few centuries somewhere in the world. The site also preserves some of the early evidence for controlled use of fire. And with that last story, we have reached the end of our podcast, and as always, I would like to thank you for listening, even if we do have some long pauses, much like the early people of Oceania, apparently. Now, uh, if you have enjoyed the podcast and you're a first-time listener, feel free to subscribe or maybe leave us a review. See what you like and what you don't like. If you have any questions or anything you need to correct me on, like my pronunciations, because I know that they're wrong, feel free to email me at philip at stonepages.com. That is P-H-I lip at stonepages.com or you can follow the link in the rss feed and it should bring up your uh, mail client of choice now without further ado i would like to sign off once more and i will see you guys next time 